hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. No. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to episode 366 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year Young Adult Brain Cancer Survivor, coming to you now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing Young Adult Cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. This show, Bioethics, Careers, and Stupid Cancer. Whitney Hadley, a long-term pediatric cancer survivor, spent three years working toward a PhD in bioethics, only to then pursue an MSW as an underachiever, to explore the importance of the patient narrative in healthcare. She joins us to talk about her story, her career, and her extraordinary life's work unraveling the fabric of the young adult cancer movement. Our survivor spotlight is on oncology nurse, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Christine Magnus Moore. All right. Hello, friends. Yeah, full house tonight. Hello. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mallory. Hello, Noel. Hello. Who are you? Oh, yeah, Kenny. That's Hello. Right. You matter, right? You're a big deal? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. What's going on? How you been? Uh, good. Uh, I feel like the house is settling on some of our internal tech stuff that we have been shifting. Recently. I know. It's been exciting to see it all come together. As I still don't adopt anything. Good. Exactly. We like to, uh, what's the line from The Departed? Uh, feed your shit and keep you in the dark? Yes. Treat that, you like a mushroom? Thank you. Yeah. I, mission accomplished. Yep. Yes. And uh, Sean, how are you? Swell. We swapped cities this, this past week. Yeah, I Ooh, think, Things uh, are getting serious. <laughs> it was like the role of displacement. You left and I filled in that void. What were you doing in Chicago? Uh, I'm a Penn Stater, so Penn State played Northwestern. Oh. Um, hung out with... That's uh, a sports thing, right? Sports. Ball, you know, you put the ball down the field. Is that football? Football. Foosball? Yeah. Okay. Um, George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones was there. Um, it was pretty neat to see him there. Who was he rooting for? 
Uh, I think he's from Chicago, no? I don't know. He's rooting for the Cubs. <laughs> I don't, there's, they honored him with something, so I'm assuming he's from Chicago. As Kenny says, still wearing his Mets hat. Yep. That says World Series champions on it. It does not say champions. Oh, okay. Just says World So they made it to the World Series. That's right. There was a guy who got a tattoo, World Champs, preemptively after game one. Oh, that's and so... And he's been, you know, everyone hates him because he was... That's buyer's remorse if I ever heard it. Or he jinxed the whole thing and everyone hates him. <laughs> I used to think that if I watched the Mets that they would lose. Right. Because they always did. Mm-hmm. Every time I watched. Mallory, how are you? I am just dandy. I see lots of pet containers on your feeds. I, I may have gotten a pet stroller for my birthday. Oh, wow. So now I can roll Jesse around in style in the R. Very nice. Are you a year older now than the last show? No. Or were, you, were you already? I, I celebrated my birthday in Denver. Okay, that's A few right. weeks ago. So this is your second show being not 27? No, I am 27 Not being now. 26, yes. right, okay. I still remain the youngest, which I hold on to. It's with all pride. downhill. It's all downhill. It really is. It really is. Uh, actually, Noel looks like 22 years old, so he might beat you on the... Uh... I don't know how to take that, actually. Oh, his mic's not working? Is Noel muted? I have no idea. How's that? <laughs> There's Noel. Uh, yep. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I don't know how to take that, actually, as a compliment. It is a compliment. Well, it's a very It's you. a compliment. May I just say, I'm shocked to hear that George R. R. Martin's not actually writing the book. I don't know what's going on. I mean, he's going to football games instead. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's time off from, oh. from Fantasyland. Yes. Well, speaking of Fantasyland, um, I was in Chicago uh, this week uh, for a really important series of conferences. The Anka Fertility Consortium had its annual meeting, which is very, very serious, very extraordinary work. Um, and then the Critical Mass annual conference happened, and there was a bit of a shock uh, while I was there. And um, they're changing their entire mission to focus more on legislative action, and I really believe <coughs> that the um, the initial push is going to be on reproductive rights for young adults. So it was pretty impressive to see you know, Heidi get up there, Heidi Adams, the CEO of um, Critical Mass, get up there and, uh, you know, really just tell 200 people, a massive crowd this year, by the way, half the people were brand new, only to hear that everything's changing during the keynote. But their, um, uh, their, their shift is now towards taking most of the advocacy teachings that we have been participating in for nearly a decade since the Live Strong Young Adult Alliance and moving it towards how to change policy in Washington to our benefit, basically solving a lot of the problems that we are holding nonprofits to fix on behalf of there being no policy. So it was really interesting to see uh, to see that shift. But going from Anka Fertility Consortium to Critical Mass, pivoting to reproductive health, the one takeaway which I found most interesting, I love your thoughts on this, is they're reframing reproductive rights into sterility prevention because the word sterility has a little more weight to it and fear to it than oh reproductive health that just sounds so nice but not really in the place of cancer rob me of my ability to be a mom or a dad um it's good it's it's marketing i guess semantics but from a almost like a pr perspective it just sounds more daunting and necessary what do you think it's a little bit more shock and awe yeah I like it. Fertility, prevent, uh, sterility prevention. Does that throw fear into the hearts and minds? A little. Just a little. Not much. 
Not much, but st- a little. I'm trying to Just think of something right that's similar to it. <clears throat> well, we think of sterility as like euthanasia, you know, or, or things like that. We want to sterilize the people that shouldn't breed anymore. So that was the first thing that was, you know, how do we change public opinion on what sterility really means? And it goes back to the way that they account for how insurance uh, codes uh, ethics. So fertility preservation or sterility prevention is really considered cosmetic and unnecessary. And yet breast cancer reconstruction is cosmetic and unnecessary biologically. But ethically, we decided as a country that this is an entitlement for young women, and it was written into law because of something called iatrogenics, which is doing harm to do well. You're breaking the Hippocratic Oath by giving surgery and removing breasts to save that person's life. So the least that can be done ethically is to reinsure the, I guess, the aesthetics that were taken away from you because of the iatrogenic, and that's a fancy word, damage done. The harm done needs to be made up for. So can they conflate the harm done in a causing sterility to save your life as a, um, an entitlement where it shouldn't cost you any money to have a child one day? So a fascinating philosophical ethics debate, and it actually leads to our, our show on, on bioethics, which was a massive part of both oncofertility and critical mass, which is really interesting. Um, what else? Anything else in the news this week? There was an interesting video that started making the rounds yesterday. Oh, yeah, BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed gets props and a little ire from me. Um, they did a really great, I guess, um, kind of like a sizzle video a little bit of, of young people with cancer talking about how it robbed them of their life and what it really means to beat cancer. And they featured no old people which was interesting that they really went younger, which is BuzzFeed's audience, clearly. But I really take a little umbrage with the fact that they would produce this without reaching out to any cancer organizations in the country. Forget us for now. They did nothing in terms of leveraging this for any sort of action or advocacy. And uh, I I think it's a shame that they did not choose to do this. Uh, It is my hope that if they go this route again, they will engage with the young adult cancer community. But I think the show, the the pod, uh, the video that is, did a really good job at um, sort of framing how cancer can be, the face of cancer can be young. Yeah. And H. Allen was in it. Yes. Our our friend from Los Angeles, yes. Mr. Scott. He looked old, didn't he? Well, he dyed his hair gray. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. He, he's an actor. But the H. Allen Scott... Uh, uh, guest of the stupid cancer show definitely worth googling checking him out very cool very funny guy um but yeah so i again kudos to buzzfeed but you know next time try to engage the community that can make a difference when people watch your videos i saw it got like 1.1 million when i looked at it so that's a lot of views that could have had even a button at the end here are four groups that you should follow blah 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 whatever uh my my self-ingratiating soapbox rant is now complete so with that said let's start our show in the spotlight on this show, Christine Magnus Moore has worked as an oncology nurse for 14 years. She is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and the author of a book called Both Sides of the Bedside, From Oncology Nurse to Patient and RN's Journey with Cancer. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Christine Magnus Moore. Christine, hello. Hi, everyone. No, so excited to have you. I, I always find it so inspiring to meet 
oncology professionals and medical professionals who went into the field and then either got sick in the field or went into the field because they got sick. It's such an interesting balance of decision-making, and uh, you are no exception to that rule. So first of all, congratulations on beating cancer, which is probably the biggest win right now on the show. Yes, I am ecstatic to be a 13-and-a-half-year cancer survivor. Yes, that is a really big deal. Can you talk to us about what life was like six months before your diagnosis? Yes. Actually, the majority of my career, um, I have been an oncology nurse. So prior to me getting cancer, I was an oncology nurse for a little over seven years. And then I wanted to diversify my background, so I became a recovery room nurse and then an emergency room nurse. So six, six months prior, I was an emergency room nurse. And I was working another job, and I was just, you know, living life, having fun, traveling the world, just living life. And I started to notice that I was tired. I was fatigued, but I thought, of course I'm tired. I'm an emergency room nurse, and I'm on my feet 12 hours a day. But then I started to notice I was getting some night sweats, and I kind of let, you know, just thought, well, it's just because I'm working too hard. And then a golf ball-sized lump appeared in my left groin, and it came out of nowhere. So obviously I thought this is obviously something that I need to get checked out, which I did. And I went to uh, my doctor, and then I went to a surgeon, and the surgeon said he wanted to take a biopsy in surgery. And he and I had worked together before, so I knew my doctors as colleagues, but then also as you know, nurse or patient, patient doctor as well. So I went to uh, have surgery, and I was lying on the gurney on, after rec- in the recovery room, and my surgeon walked up to me and told me that I had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And, and you knew what that was? I definitely knew what that was. Right. Yes. We, we hear stories from people that are, t- oh, 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 that doesn't sound so bad. No, it's blood cancer. Oh, okay. It is blood cancer, and I was, I felt like I was shot down by the enemy. I mean, I knew exactly that it would be a rough road and that my life was in jeopardy. There was no question about it. And so I immediately started crying, and I pulled him close to me with his tie and asked him to hug me, which he did. And just uh, there, my road was sh- you know my whole life was shattered at that point and my road completely changed to being a cancer patient we had a guest on the show i think last week who was a cancer researcher and was deep deeply steeped in the the cockles of academia and knew all of the journals and the publications and was diagnosed with cancer and brought a whole wealth of knowledge she wished she didn't have to that conversation were you in a similar situation Yes, definitely. Yes. I, the majority of my career, like I was saying, was an oncology nurse and I had worked surgical oncology, medical oncology, but the majority was bone marrow transplant. So I had worked with patients who had leukemia and lymphoma and they were at the point where they needed a transplant. So I knew that my road would be rough with the chemotherapy and um, I didn't have to have a transplant, thankfully, but Yes, it plagued my mind even more so, I think, because I knew too much. I knew what was involved. I'd given chemotherapy, I can't even count how many times to patients, and seen them 
ill and, you know, the after effects of what it does, obviously for a good reason, but, um, yeah, it was very traumatic and and hard to go through. Were you, I mean, this was 13 years ago, so probably before genetic screenings and whatnot, were you just given first line? I was given, yes, CHOP and Rituxan first line treatment. Yes. Right, okay. And I had seven, uh, I had eight cycles over a seven-month period of time. And then declared Ned? Yes, yes, definitely, yes. Did you have to take off from work? I mean, we, we talk about careers and being young and why it's different, not being 80 with cancer, and, and this is something that you were, this was your career, and, and how did that manifest itself from a uh, pragmatic perspective? Yes. I, it definitely affected me in every level. Well, working in oncology or the emergency room, you definitely cannot be working as you're going through cancer treatment because there's, you know, germs everywhere, especially in the emergency room and the hospital. So I was on disability and I had to learn what it was like to be on disability and to not work, which was very much of a challenge. But on the other side of it, I was so sick from my chemo treatments. I was I was one of those that, you know, threw up for four days straight, could barely eat or drink. I lost 20 pounds throughout the course of my treatment, which I didn't need to lose. Right. And I could barely walk up a flight of stairs. I was so fatigued. I mean, it just was was way more than I knew it to be having been an oncology nurse helping patients. I obviously knew a lot, but having been sitting, you know, lying in the gurney, um, lying on on the couch um, post-treatment, it was just way more um, traumatic than I knew. Now, I want to get to the book in a bit, but I have so many more questions to ask because this is this is unique, but yet not unique. Again, we've had lots of people on the show who either went into oncology after being sick or were in the profession and then got sick and it changed the way they understood their roles and careers. You have training in, in teen and young adult cancer under your belt. Was this before or after your diagnosis? That was after my diagnosis, yes. When I was a bone marrow transplant nurse, I took care of quite a bit of young adults and I just really, I mean, I was a young adult myself and I, I just really liked that age range. And so after I was an oncology nurse, after my oncology nurse and then I became a patient, I was on disability and I actually ended up losing my job because they couldn't hold my job because I needed to be off work more than they could hold my job for. So I, but what worked out was I knew that I completely had a changed view and I wanted to get back into the field of oncology. So I went into pediatric oncology, intensive care unit, and I um, took a mat. I went through a master's certification in teens and young adults with cancer to specialize in that area. Right. So very opportunistic considering it's a massive movement now that you're fully aware of. Yes. Yes. So what has it meant for you to see the young adult cancer movement spring up over the last five or 10 years? I think it's fantastic. I think it is absolutely what is needed. People are, um, well, you know, 72,000, which you all know, um, young adults are affected by cancer, newly diagnosed, and we need to have special care for them in the way of, you know, they're going through a traumatic time in their life, not only with cancer, but just a lot going on as far as being, you know, 
finding a career, finding somebody, you know, a mate, you know, dealing with self-image, dealing with, um, you know, fatigue on the cancer journey versus, you know, everybody, all their friends are out having fun and living life and starting families. And it is just a big, it's just a big change that no one understands until you've been through it. And right. I think that's why the cancer movement is so important. The young adult cancer movement is so important and vital. No, I, I obviously I agree because I'm part of this. But at the same time, um, my my big excitement is that how do we differentiate why young adult cancer isn't any better or worse than pediatric and I guess they call them like mature cancer now. That's the PC term. They're mature cancer right. over 55. Um, but I have to explain to people that young adult cancer is different for one basic fact that we have gonads that work yes. and that they should work <clears throat> in our age group to make babies, which is what we'd like to do. And oftentimes we can't do that anymore because cancer can make you infertile. I just got back from two back-to-back conferences, the Oncofertility Consortium and Critical Mass in Chicago, and the single biggest narrative there was on what they're now calling sterility prevention. So, which I'm excited is like this new language that isn't like reproductive health that sounds so pretty in Hallmark card. It's really the damages that can be affected. Were you made aware of or did you come to the table understanding that first line from the Hoskins can potentially put you at risk for being sterile? You know, back then it wasn't really talked about to as as you've heard, I'm sure, over and over, it really wasn't talked about, and I wasn't, no one said, hey, do you want to, you know, save your eggs? Um, and that didn't happen. And in fact, um, yeah, it's it's such a huge issue, and it's, I remember taking care of patients, and, you know, they do sperm banking in the hospital, which was definitely needed and great, but I think it was such a hit or miss um, topic, depending on, you know, just the signs of the times, but I think now it is imperative for everyone to be very aware of that and to have so many organizations that are, you know, speaking that language to <coughs> young adults. So I'm reading here from you by your TEDx speaker. You're on the board of LLS Southern California, and yes. you're a, a board member on an organization called You Are Not Alone. Can you tell us about your um, experience? So this is real advocacy. You're taking an active role in bringing our voice to perhaps a community that isn't aware of it, what's been the pri- and then I'm going to get to the book because we're leading up to this. Um, w- what has been your experience taking that active role? I fully believe that every cancer survivor has as their duty, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, it's my duty and my privilege to help others on the cancer journey and to help other people understand the cancer journey. And by being, um, having those roles, I'm also a leader of a young adult group called the LLS SoCal Cancer Connection as well. And by having those roles, I think that's how we give back and that's what we're called to do. And um, I am privileged to be able to speak young, the young adults about the young adult population and to give insight into that age range and the specifics of what they go through. Um, so I think it's just something that is an honor and a privilege that I'm allowed to do with those organizations and 
I am a full believer in mentoring and and having peer-to-peer relationships with people going through the cancer journey. So um, it's it's a gift, really. It's it's where my heart is at. It's deep deep within. Well, <laughs> we are the proud alumni. I just turned forty-one this year, so I've aged out of my own organization. Congratulations. Yes. I'm, I'm, I, I want to be like 81, age I, I want to live to 81. Yeah, so there we go. So, I like it. So let's get to the book. I mean, everyone's it, it, like, really a book? People write books. But, yes, books really still matter, and it's a great way to channel your story. And, again, the uniqueness of having been on I, – I say both sides of the coin, but you're right. It really is both sides of the bed, as a nurse especially, because you've been literally there. Um, what inspired you to just put all this down and, and make a book out of it? When I was going through my own cancer treatment, I knew that I was called to write a book to share a deeper vantage point of the cancer experience and one that I definitely obtained by being a patient. And I just knew that by me sharing my perspectives of having been an oncology nurse and what that looks like um, mirrored next to, paralleled with um, what the cancer journey is about as a patient experiences, my own experiences, that that would um, bring insight and my prayer to bring insight and understanding to people that don't quite know what it's about and wonder or not they're not sure what to do. So that's pretty much why I wrote the book. And I was I, people encouraged me to, and I had writing was something that I was. Um, a little bit adept at, and I kept a journal during my my treatment, not every day, but a little bit, so I was able to reflect back on that, but I had to, in order to write my book, I had to relive the whole experience, actually, which was interesting. <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, not funny, but it's poignant because the book really potentially has three audiences. You have the public, who should read this book because it's awesome. You have young adults who will see an amazing story, and you have nurses and providers who can see what it's like to truly have perhaps a different slant on humanity. I give talks all the time. We are involved in lots of organizational programs where we're talking to doctors and nurses and social workers who've never really heard from their patients when they're not in treatment. So it's fascinating to have that duality to what you offer that community. Have you done a lot of work? Uh, or workshops with providers around the book and your story? I Yes, I actually do speaking engagements, and I've spoken at some um, oncology conferences and, and meetings and just in general to organizations. Um, but what I found, which is really exciting, because like I was saying, my hope and prayer every day is that I, you know, my book can help someone. And what I found already is that cancer patients, I've been told, are using it as a companion book, kind of like a print version of a nurse navigator. Right. And cancer survivors have read it and said that it helped them heal because as you all know, when you go through the cancer journey, you know, you just get, you're just trying to get through it. You're trying to live your life and, you know, keep your life and, you know, get through what you have to get through and you don't really piece it all together until maybe later or even attempt to. And so, it, it's, it's, I'm just thrilled that cancer survivors are telling me that it helped them heal, and caregivers are definitely telling me that it helps them understand um, their loved ones who are going through cancer in a better way, and healthcare professionals are 
saying it's a must must read for every healthcare professional. Right, of course. Mm-hmm. And then people who aren't never <clears throat> aren't related to cancer, which actually just happened today earlier. Someone told me, I just read your book and it's a I couldn't put it down. It's a page turner. So I wrote it in a very engaging manner so that people would um well, you know, it's dramatic anyway when you go through this, the cancer journey. So <laughs> Right. You know, what I find most poignant, again, and this is really very difficult to explain to the average person in the public, is that cancer doesn't really end after your last day of treatment, and that the word research and cure don't really define anything. That this right. notion, and survivorship is a nebulous word, but it's kind of all we have now. It's like, what is the post-traumatic narrative of your life after cancer, which is very different when you're not 80, and when you're not six, have you yeah. found it to be difficult when people say, oh, you're fine, right? When, when you talk to other young adults, you're not really fine. I'm 20 years out. And, you know, I deal with all the nonsense that I'm blessed to have because I didn't die when I was 21. Right, right. <clears throat> I completely agree. I hear it all the time. And I, you know, from young adults that I work, that I'm um, in the group with, that, you know, we still have to carry a burden and the burden is it might be fear of, oh, my gosh, is it going to come back? Because that is the biggest fear that right. anyone who's a cancer survivor, you know, thinks about. So you have the burdens of the psychological <gasps> burdens, the emotional burdens of, oh, here's a memory of oh, put me right back of sitting in the chemo chair. Right. You know, or even I can think of still to this day, think of chemo and, you know, I salivate because I, I, I just the horrible feeling of that nausea, right. you know? Mm-hmm. So it never is over. Um, but I think if we can translate that into helping others with what we've been through and actually having the connections, I think that's the most important thing is having connections, which you do so well with stupid cancer, having the connections with other young adults to share these perspectives and to share that, you know, you're not alone on the journey. Um, I had uh, a young adult in the group tell me that she said, you know, there's all these survivors that, you know, they're out, you know, 15 years or whatever it may be, and they're all so happy and they've done a half marathon, they've done this and that. But she said, you know, how did they get there? No one talks about how the emotional component of what you have to get through to be there. And I really thought that was a, a good perspective. And so I'm a big proponent for people talking about the emotional side of the of um, the journey. And that's also in my book as well. And sharing these experiences because the, the general public doesn't understand. You know, they, they just don't. Well, I still haven't made it to the marathon. I'll let you know what that happens. I've done three half marathons, well, so you can do it. Oh, uh, no, I can't. Trust me, I can't. It's okay. <laughs> I, I've forgiven the universe for my talents, or lack thereof. <laughs> All right, before we go, <clears throat> I, I, are you aware that we're having a young adult cancer conference at UC Irvine this month? I do, and I am signed up, and I am so excited to go. We are really stoked to see the SoCal community come out in support of the event and to rally a bunch of people. Um, when is it? November 21st, Mallory? It is November OMG 21st. West, November 21st. We're almost sold out, so it's a good thing you got your seats, which is exciting. Yes. And my group um, is definitely signed up to go as well. Awesome. Well, the book is called Both Sides of the Bedside, From Oncology Nurse to Patient, and RN's Journey with Cancer. Christine Magnus-Moore, is the book on Amazon? 
Yes, it's on Amazon. It's actually a bestseller on Kindle, and it's on Barnes and Noble online and Nook. And the website is bothsidesofthebedside.com. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck, and I'll see you at our conference in uh, Irvine next later this month. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm excited to see you. Okay, Christine Magnus Moore, everybody. All right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. It is events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss an event again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, visit stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Once again, we have a lot of meetups happening. Bloomington, Broomfield, Denver, Phoenix, Anaheim, San Diego, OMG West, Redwood City, Arlington, and Orange. Very impressive. No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Download Instapeer for iPhone, iPad, and Android. Create your account and instantly start chatting with someone just like you who's been there and walked in your shoes. Join our community of hundreds of thousands of people on this mobile device. Cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers, instapeer.org. We launch a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. Check out cancermademebroke.com. That's cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You did not ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Once again, that's cancermaybebroke.com. Learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Whitney Hadley is an almost 20-year cancer survivor living in upstate New York. Last year, she was diagnosed with a blood cancer disorder and a rare benign tumor in her kidney was removed. She has shaped her career and passion around advocating for survivorship issues such as onco fertility. Very excited to have her to the show. A wealth of resume building happening right now. Please welcome Whitney Hadley. Hello. I want to just point out that I recognize that there is a state above Westchester that is allowed to be called New York. <laughs> there is. Well, Kenny and I went to Binghamton. Well, I went to Binghamton. Kenny went for like six months. But it made me aware that there is a – New York isn't just like here in Manhattan. There is actually – where are you from upstate? Um, Syracuse. Okay, that counts. I was at the Orange – the 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 what is it called? The, uh, the Carrier Dome. Uh Years and years ago to watch Billy Joel. So that's my only positive uh, recollection of Syracuse. Well, that's a good one to have. It's a very good <laughs> one to have. No, I'm excited to have you on the show. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, I have all these amazing things to talk to you about and read about. Your, your PhDs and MSWs and bioethics. I just got back from I was on the, talking to our, our prior guest. I was at the Oncofertility Consortium's annual conference and Critical Mass, which is the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, and the bioethics of... Uh, iatrogenics was brought up around reproductive health and infertility. Mm-hmm. So fascinating stuff. But I want to just backtrack a little bit to just get you get your story here. 
Um, let's talk about your diagnosis and your treatment and what you've been through first. Okay. So um, I was diagnosed when, I guess, I remember in third grade I was diagnosed with diabetes insipidus, and I was actually misdiagnosed at first. Um, They thought that I had histiocytosis X on my pituitary gland, Um, and they watched it for a while, and then after a while it started to grow, and they reevaluated and realized, wait, we need to biopsy this. Um, So I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and had a pituitary biopsy, and it came back positive for um, a 100% germ cell tumor. And that was um, in the fall of 96. And I was in fifth grade. Um, And shortly after that, I started chemotherapy, and I was in the hospital for every holiday from... I was I was home for Halloween, but after that, I was in the hospital for every holiday um, past Easter. So that was a, not a great year of my life, but I lived through it and um, spent almost 20 years. Well, I was diagnosed in 1996 also. I was 21, so we were about 10 years apart. So first of all, congratulations on 20 years. That's a really big deal. Thank you. <laughs> So how was your, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, cancer is the gift that keeps on giving and there really is no cure in the same sense. And so going through, you know, high school and college, did you face any side effects or other conditions as a result of being, I would assume you pronounced no evidence of disease at some point? Well, I, I didn't have any side effects. Um, well, I did. That's a lie. I had side effects from um, my treatment. I had hearing loss, so I wear hearing aids, so that wasn't always um, a very fun reality um, as a kid in high school and in college. Um, I did have side effects because my tumor was on my pituitary gland, even though the gland is still there. It doesn't really function. So I'm on a bunch of meds that basically keep me going with hormones, and over the years there's been issues with balancing those properly and, you know, finding doctors that knew what they were doing, but it always worked out. Um, so I, I've been very lucky um, to go through my life with manageable side effects right. that I know about so far. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it can always be a surprise. I'm, I'm living with, uh, happily living with massively challenging, you know, chronic situations that are all mitigated through chemistry, which is exciting. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. we'd rather have these than the alternative, we always say. Yeah. So what uh, what drew you to, you know, the, the complete underachiever interest in getting a PhD? <laughs> well, so I fell in love with the field of bioethics. Um, as an undergrad, I, I was pre-med and realized probably halfway through that, you know, I, I don't really want to have the pressure of having somebody's life in my hands. Because if I was going to go to med school, I was going to go big. You know, I was going to go to oncology. I was going to do surgery. or That's just what I had envisioned. Um, and I stumbled upon a medical ethics class and found the field of oncofertility and fell in love with it. Um, so right out of college, I went and got my master's in bioethics and quickly learned that you don't stop there. Um, so I was actually in a PhD program for three years um, 
focusing on fertility preservation and actually patient narratives and the importance of telling your story as a patient um, in oncology. And so I guess I kind of just got sucked into the field and that's where it took me. So tell us more. I mean, because we've been around for about nine years now and, and back in the day when blogs were a big deal, then that kind of went away, then content came back, and now storytelling is all the rage again. The patient narrative role is that much more imperative than ever before. Uh, Have you seen that kind of transition in your work over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen that. Um, There was, when I was in the PhD program, I ended up, I ended up leaving for a number of reasons, but when I was there, you know, the rise of the um, advocacy organizations was beginning, and I stumbled upon Stupid Cancer then and listened to a couple of podcast episodes, and um, other websites had videos being posted, and a lot of blogs came up, and there's a, a wealth of poetry out there written by patients, um, especially focusing on infertility, and it, it was starting to become a big thing. But I have noticed over the last couple of years, it's becoming more and more common as organizations like Stupid Cancer are giving people an avenue and um, the energy to have a voice and to feel empowered. And it's really, it's really fantastic to see. So you got your PhD in bioethics and then you went to pursue an MSW, uh, again, following the underachiever hashtag under which this entire (laughs) podcast is couched. Uh, was there a specific call for you to do that? Well, so I didn't actually get my PhD. I, I was in the program and left because um, what I wanted to write about wasn't wasn't going to be supported in the right environment. Right. Um, so I left that program and I never got the, the PhD. And so I still wanted three more letters after my name. <laughs> yeah, that's very um, fair. I only have two, so you win. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, I'm not done. Um, so I, I went for the MSW thinking, okay, here's a way that I can focus on policy. I can focus on um, working with people. I wanted to look more specifically at how I could make a difference instead of sitting in an office and writing these papers that I felt like I'm going to write papers and it won't make as big of an impact as it will if I can work with somebody um, or work with a group that can help me make a policy or have a louder voice. Um, so that's why I chose the MSW was to focus more specifically on how I can do something and give me tools rather than just the, the thought processes. Right. And I'm reading here in your bio that one of the first applications of that was interning for Komen in central New York and then working for Livestrong Fertility. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity, um, over the years I had been in touch with, a couple of people at Livestrong who were working on um, really building their fertility program. Um, and as a part of that, I was invited to be one of their expert panel members, um, not only with my background in medical ethics and social work, but also as a cancer survivor. Um, and that was an amazing opportunity. I helped them um, create, I reviewed a um, computer-based education program for um, healthcare professionals to train them in the issues of fertility for cancer patients and why it's important and why you need to talk about it. And um, 
all of the great stuff that goes along with that. But it was an amazing opportunity. Um, I'm very proud of that program. Right. And again, I think this helped you reinforce what your purpose might be. And uh, again, I mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, reproductive health and what they're now calling iatrogenic um, uh, sterility prevention is the new narrative and the new hot topic here. Before we get to you coming to our conference, OMG East in New York, which I want to hear about, um, you know, we call cancer, we said this, the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, last year, 10 years after, you know, um, you had been seen uh, by your doctors, you had a nephrectomy uh, or a partial nephrectomy because of your cancer or because of another condition? It was actually a totally separate um, tumor that they found um, on my kidney. I actually was diagnosed with um, idiopathic thrombocytopenia, um, and I had hardly any platelets, felt like crap, and went in and they did a scan, and they're like, oh, you have spots on your kidney. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a scary thing for anyone to hear, but for somebody who has a pretty hazy childhood experience of hospitals and you know, oncology in general, having to go into the brand new shiny cancer center um, all over again was not very fun. Uh, it was pretty scary part of the last, it was about a year ago. Um, but luckily I had my family there and my best friend is actually a radiation oncology resident here and her husband happens to be a urology resident. So um, I was in great hands, but it was not very fun. <laughs> Did you initially think that this was some kind of recurrence or relapse? And, and I feel like, you know, your, your T-shirt should be, thank God it was only a nephrectomy. Yeah, I, I immediately thought that that's what it was. I was actually told there's a 90, 98% chance that this is cancerous, but we'll just take it out and you'll be fine. Um, but, you know, everything flashes through your head. And, right. um it was very isolating because you, you, you know, I had family and friends who were very supportive, but it's, it's hard to really explain it to somebody. Yes. Um, and no one really understands what you're going through and, you know, they check in with you, but that's the times between someone checking in on you are very quiet and dark. And I watched a ton of Hulu and Netflix. Right. Exactly. So, I'm reading here, and I, I just have to read this out loud because it means so much to me personally. It wasn't until you watched the Stupid Cancer Manifesto video that you realized that it was a legitimate experience that was just as scary as a diagnosis because all along you didn't know what you were dealing with. That, you know, the manifesto, which we recorded in, I think, early 2012, it still really holds up as to what it means to be not 80 facing a life altering experience. Uh, was that your first introduction to stupid cancer, or were you uh, aware of our programs prior to, like with Livestrong? Um, I was aware of the programs, but you know, when I first heard about you guys, I was a childhood cancer survivor, and you know, I kind of pictured, okay, that's a different community for me. Um, and it wasn't until last year that I real, and when I, it wasn't until I read, I heard the manifesto when I was like, okay, not only am I a childhood cancer survivor, but I just went through this, and this was just as scary as a cancer diagnosis. 
and this is just as legitimate and just as real. And I went through all of this pain and suffering and craziness. And I am a part of this community too. You'd be surprised um, at our statistics if you really broke down our demographic and our community. Close to 25% of everyone that shows up to anything had cancer under the age of 18 and is now a young adult. So we are filling a void of all these kids that live with consequences that they have to face when they're not kids. So you are the right. embodiment of exactly that. So I'm really, it means so much that you found us and we, we helped to give you a sense of belonging that you, you truly are sort of a member of the club that no one wants to belong to. <laughs> so it is a good club to be a part of though. If you have to be a part of one. Well, yeah. If once you're here, you're family, but you know, it, it's the best, it's the best club you never wished you had to, to know about. Um, <clears throat> would, would you mind telling me about your experience at our conference OMG East in New York? Was that your first ever event with young adults? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I actually, um, became pretty good friends with um, David Fuhrer, your good friend. Yes, um, our board of directors. And we had talked on the phone and kind of emailed back and, forth, back and forth, and I mentioned to him that I was thinking about going. And because you happened to plan the party the same time the Pope was having a pretty big party in New York, um, my plans kind of fell through. I was terrified to go into the city by myself with all of the rest of basically North America um, and decided I wasn't going to go. And of course, Dave called me about two hours before leaving from Rochester and said, hey, um, I'm going to drive through Syracuse. Do you by any chance want to just, you know, hop in the car? Right. And I said, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to go. So I wasn't even home. I ran home and packed and was in New York um, that night. And it was probably the most spontaneous thing I've ever done in my life and probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I walked into the room and was kind of scared because I knew Dave and um, Jessica and her husband, who I had driven in with. And that was about it. But I immediately felt comfortable and had this sense of, like, this is where I was supposed to be. Um, and I've never felt fully comfortable in my own skin, and I didn't realize that until that moment. And well, it was amazing. Well, I'm really excited that your spontaneity, uh, and, and I'm glad you got in a car with Dave. We trust him, so it was a good decision. He's a yeah, good... oh, it was, it was the greatest <laughs> thing I could have done. So, I'm so thankful now. <laughs> no, and I, I, this is the kind of testimony that matters the most to us. It's you, you know you dip your toe in the water, but you jumped into the deep end. And uh, OMG East next to CancerCon, which I hear you are excited to be coming to Denver potentially next April. We can't wait to have you. Is you know? Yeah, let's, I'm pumped. Let's get some Syracuse coming to Denver. That'd be exciting to do. Yes, that's what I'm planning to do. So we got about a minute or two left. Uh, what are you working on now? And uh, how can, are you published? Are you writing? Do you have a blog? What what can people do to support you? I'm actually not published. Um, I'm currently working on trying to come up with a way to tell my story that is creative. Um, 
I love to write, but I tend to be better at writing arguments <laughs> right? Um, and articles and published in academic articles, but not, not with my own story. So I've spent all this time studying and promoting the importance of patient narrative. And I've just started to realize that maybe, you know, in honor of 20 years, it's time to do that. So this is my first step um, towards that. And I will keep you posted for sure. Well, you're, 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 you've jumped down the stupid cancer rabbit hole. So rest assured <laughs> you're in the right hands to help you get your, your, uh, your story out right. First and foremost, right here on the podcast. Uh, it's really inspiring and really amazing. And I can't thank you enough for having the courage, first of all, to just jump down to New York to our event and, and, you know, be a, a intrinsic part of everything we represent and stand for. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure and, I can't wait to see what CancerCon is like. And, you know, everybody that I've met so far is absolutely amazing. And uh, I can't wait to meet more of the family. Well, Whitney Hadley, long-term pediatric cancer survivor, three years working toward a PhD, pursued an MSW. She is an expert in iatrogenics and a narrative of healthcare for patient stories. Non-Hodgkin's, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to say this wrong. It was a pituitary gland germinoma. And then a nephrectomy from a secondary unrelated. It's an interesting story. Whitney Hadley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, Kenny and team. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so... To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 366th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And, of course, follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Christine, Magnus Moore, and Whitney Hadley for joining us. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is the production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here on the next exciting podcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks.